0: is Executive Director of Sisters in Crime, and I am delighted to have Tracy DeHaan on the podcast today. Tracy started her professional life as an architect before transitioning to the nonprofit world and eventually university fundraising. An avid reader, the desire to write felt like a natural evolution, while the transition to be a published author took a shove from a friend who threatened to submit her manuscript. That's the right kind of friend. Tracy's first two books were inspired by several years living in Switzerland and were published by Minotaur Books. Currently, she's working on a mystery set in a distillery in her home state of. Kentucky. A member of Mystery Writers of America and the International Thriller Writers, she's a national membership liaison for Sisters in Crime. Welcome to the podcast, Tracy. Thank you, Julie. Every time I hear hometown
1: or home state, even when I've said it myself or written it myself, I get a little (laughs) sense of, is somebody going to go, is that really your hometown and your home state? Because I was born in Missouri and lived oh. there, and then moved to Kentucky in fifth grade. So, you know, I feel like I grew up in Kentucky. Obviously, those are kind of where I remember most things, but every time I say home state, I think, oh, but I was born in Missouri, and I don't want to leave them out, so a little <laughs> shout out. And I say Missouri because I was born in the Boot heel, which is, you know, a very specific geographic region, and apparently we say Missouri with an A, and if I heard someone say Cincinnati with an A, with Cincinnati, I would kind of laugh, and yet I say Missouri with an A, so who knows, you know, just go figure.
0: Well, through fifth grade is is formative, but past fifth grade is, is more of you coming into who you were as a human being.
1: Yes, yeah. so I tend to say home state of Kentucky and then think, oh... Poor little Parma, Missouri, where I was. <laughs> and I was born in Cape Girardeau, which uh, my husband's from Switzerland. And so I I'm, he must have seen it on a passport, which is a weird thing, like when you're dating, to see somebody's passport. But he was like, Oh, Cape I'm like, yeah, that's, that's not one of the big capes. (laughs) That's not like, like you're running through the capes. You're thinking Cape Horn, Cape Hope. I'm like, no, you're not going to find this one, but it sounded very exotic. I like that.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So obviously your, uh, your life has informed parts of your writing, but you know, let's, um, and I want to talk more about your, well, let's talk about being an architect, you know, and that journey. And was that something that was of interest to you that you felt a passion for? Because, you know, architecture is another art form. Um, you know, were you a writer then as well? Or or was, you know, were your creative exploits um, done through, through designing buildings?
1: I think deep inside, I was always a writer. And I think... Um but probably like many people, I did not know that writing could be a profession. It didn't sound secure enough. And I I came from a, it wasn't that my parents in any way pressured me to do anything. They, they in no way, um, you know, were like, you have to do X or Y. They were very supportive. But I think in the back of your mind, you're just informed by, you know, background stuff. And so my father was a physician, his grandfather was a physician, many people in the family were. And so you felt like you should be in that kind of a profession, something that is, um, I'm going to graduate and I'm going to have this exact kind of job. And so for me, architecture was like the creative version of that. Mm -hmm. You know, it was, and, and very interestingly, um, my, my dad, it was really got a wide variety of interests. His um, practice was building a new office, quite a large office. And uh, they bought an old theater and they were renovating it. And he did a design and I was in about the fifth or sixth grade. And he's like, let's just draw it up. Let's take the existing building and lay it out like he thought it would work for a physician, for a practice of physicians. We submitted it and the big fancy architecture firm from out of town built it exactly that way, which is a little bit disturbing, but was also, wow. you know, but was also a little bit like, wow, architecture is kind of interesting <laughs> and very creative. So I went down that path, um, while I was in college, I was a huge reader, but I never thought, oh, I could write professionally. And, um, while I was in college, my dad was an ER doctor. So we had like four days on four days off. He said, well, why don't this summer, I have an idea for a book. Let's write this book together. And it was a, like a techno thriller. And I thought it sounded exciting to try this. Um, and at the same time, he of course was paying all of my bills. So both it was both exciting and also something that, you know, was not going to like go, I want to go waitress instead. So, um, so we would spend his days off on my parents' houseboat. And then the days he was working, we'd be back at their house and, you know, he would not really have the time to work. I'd continue to work. And it was like doing a little masterclass together and of course this is way before the internet and so we would go to the university library which was about an hour and a half away we do all of our research there fortunately the university library was near the lake that was kind of ironic and um you know it was it was like a writers retreat I and mean, my dad was a very serious professional so in his days off he wanted to accomplish this new professional goal very seriously we looked at other books that we thought were in the same genre uh we had little note card system and and I must say I followed my dad's lead. It was really his idea for the book. And I was really the reader and perhaps a little bit the writer because of that. And so that was my first foray. And I I was hooked after this. Mm-hmm. But I didn't say, oh, maybe I should be a writer. I went back to architecture school. And, and that's kind of how my life was. And I think this is the story of, you know, I don't want to give a percentage. What do you think, Julie? Ninety percent of the people out there who are doing something. Um, You know, I could name a friend now who's a doctor and, you know, Alexia Gordon, she's a physician by day, writer by night. We know people who are, you know, full-time parents by day, writers by night, people in fundraising and marketing and advertising, police officers across every walk of life. Um, And and there's always that tipping point of, can I afford to do it full-time or do I even want to try to do it full-time when maybe you're enjoying another profession? Um, the only thing I can say looking back is that at least we, um, knew that this was real work. It wasn't, well, let's just sit down and write a book, but let's sit down and look what's out there. What, what genre are we in? I'm not even sure we use the word genre. Um, you know, how long is that book? How, how is it, how is it arranged? How is it structured? So we were doing some of the things that I think are not bad things to do if you're considering writing and you're coming from a non quote writing background. Um, but that was my start. And then, and I was hooked. So I was practicing architecture. I got married. We moved to Europe. We moved back to the United States. I practiced architecture again. We moved back to Europe and I would just write different books. I would just be like, Oh, I have an idea for a book. Oh, that's a historical romance. Oh, that's a, you know, whatever. And so I at least got in the habit of finishing them and feeling like they were a finished thing. Um, I Mm -hmm. think now what I know is that a finished thing is not really a finished thing, but I do think that finishing it is good. So people out there trying to start writing, um, maybe even don't make the book as long as you originally planned, but just bring it to a conclusion and say, you know what? I wrote that book and then you can go back and, you know, flush it out
0: and make it longer or say, that's not the thing I'm going to spend more time on. That's such great advice to, to finish that draft um, is something that oftentimes gets in people's way. And, and, you know, because they want it to be perfect or they want, but finishing it is such a huge accomplishment and then editing it is the next phase. But when so let's go back to the, you know, your dad saying, let's do this you know, had, had you written before, uh, you know, had you been a creative writer younger? I mean, or was this just, I mean, it sounds like a fabulous way to spend a summer with your father, but, um, you know, where did this come from? Had, was he fostering something inside of you, um, that was already showing? I think so. And I have
1: distinct memories of my grandmother, my maternal grandmother, you know, saying to me, you should be a writer. You should write books And I think this came not just because I was a big reader. She was also a very big reader. In fact, I picked up um, uh, a book yesterday, a paperback book, Donna Tartt's first novel. Um, What is it called? The Secret History. Yes. And in the front is a note to me from my grandmother, 1993, I guess it was, probably when that was a pretty new paperback. Uh, And I thought, what an interesting book for her to have selected because it is yeah. a pretty remarkable. It was a debut novel. It was a really remarkable debut novel. It's both literary, but it's a mystery. Um, I, I, but I don't. I'm not one of these people who says, "Oh my gosh, I wrote you know stories for my family all the time." Um, but if I really take my mind back, um, I do remember adapting. <laughs> I think something like Anne of Green Gables into a play in fifth grade for my little classmates to do really, you know, on the real stage, which was a real stage back in the day. Um, So I think there was always this idea of writing, but it wasn't um, I am going to be a writer. Let's work at this and continue to write and keep a journal and work toward being a writer, which is a little bit different.
0: And did you ever take craft classes um, for writing? No. <laughs> I look back and think.
1: And in fact, uh, when my first book was published, um, it was really fun. Uh, there was an event in my hometown in Madisonville, Kentucky, and at a bookstore. And uh, my, a lot of former teachers came. Because of course, it's a very small town there's a big article in the paper, and so uh my former you know let's say my uh junior teacher uh english teacher um i forgotten if she was junior or senior um but a very important you know she was chair of the English department and all this kind of thing and I thought, oh my gosh, you know, I should apologize to her because I do not remember being like this fantastic, you know, like, oh, she's going to be a writer. She's in my English class. And, but I also, I'm not sure that we did a lot of compos- English composition. I'm not sure that mm-hmm. we were really in that path. And, and so I told this to her, and she said, oh, no. She said, you were a great student, and I, you know, I knew you'd be very successful. But she certainly didn't say, I always knew you would be a writer. That, that was not something. Although when my father and I started to write, we did have her proofread our work. So she knew she had known for a long time, that I was interested. So it wasn't like out of the blue, you know, she probably mentally made a transition. Um, but I didn't even have, um, you know, in, in college, even my classes, English classes, I had a Dickens seminar one time. Um, but you know, that was not a composition class or a craft class and, um, you know, That's probably why a group like Sisters in Crime, to be honest for me, when I first became a writer, quote, writer, you know, capital letters, um, I was like, oh, my gosh, on Sisters in Crime, I can go and watch all these craft Uh, webinars and even more now, I think, I mean, with the change in Mm -hmm. zoom and everybody's doing so much more and you can go back and listen. And even if it's something you feel like, Oh, I've heard this before. I'm pretty familiar with this. You can listen to it like radio. You can say, I'm just going to listen to that, that craft class taught by someone who I really respect. And even if it's, they remind you of something you should be doing. I think it's like an Olympic athlete. No one gets to the Olympics and says, well, I don't need a coach anymore. Their coach is there to say, remember how we worked on getting off the starting block? I think you've forgotten that one little bit. You go, you're right. You know, I'm skipping the second step. I know the second step, but I'm skipping the second step. So I think craft classes for me, although I wish I'd had them many years ago, you know, you can't go back in time. It doesn't matter. But I I do try to absorb as many as I can now.
0: And do you, um, so when you and your dad wrote together, did you... Plot? Did you pants? Like, did you learn things then that you continue on your own, or you know, what's your writing process like? Was it informed by that experience, or or has it sort of grown? I think it was definitely
1: informed by that experience. Um, I think I am in a growth stage right now. Who knows what stage I'm in right now? Um, again, I think my dad, a uh, very actually a very creative person, he's a very gifted artist. Um, But I think he also felt like this was a project he wanted to see from beginning to end. And so we did plot. And I'm not saying that Mm -hmm. we plotted every single point and then went down and wrote it, but we really had plotted it out. And, of course, with everything, um, things change. And this was a long time ago, so my memory is not perfect. But we did put all of our ideas on note cards, and we worked from an organization Mm -hmm. of those note cards and so when we worked from the organization of those note cards, we could also divide up the scenes. And, and of course, working as a team, that's how we worked. We were at the lake. We would say, well, you write that scene. I'll write this scene. And we would split up. And then we would come back and exchange them. And we would discuss them and try to make them better. Um writing the sex scenes was like the most excruciating moment of my life. I mean, you know, I was in college. I wasn't even supposed to know what sex was, you know what I'm saying? And, and so my dad, fortunately, you know, he wrote those scenes and I was able to say, well, I have no idea what you're talking about, but this sounds perfect. It's like, Oh my gosh. Um, you know, let's just move on. I'm sure that scene's great. But, but I do also think that, uh, working with someone who is, um, older, you know, was probably good for me. So let's just say I had decided to do that same project with a college friend. Um, I think we would have been at the same emotional place in our lives and would have both known very little about actually writing. And I do think my father had been so, um, busy as a physician that he had not had as much time to read as he would have liked. And because of working in the ER, um, he was able to read more in his free time. Um, and I had a lot more kind of the reading history to say, that doesn't sound right. You know, let's look at this book. That's not really how it's done. But he, in particular, I think in his profession, had a lot more um, experience and exposure with a wide range of people, uh, with emotional range that was, you know, out of my league at that point. How do people react to things? How do people truly react to life and death situations? Um, And, and also just the diversity of people that he had seen in his life, because, you know, as a doctor and especially in an an emergency room, you literally see everyone and, um, and you've made miscalculations about people and learn from that. Uh, he, um, kind of a funny story. He, um, when he first, we first moved to Madisonville and he was a young physician and he treated a man in the ER for a heart attack and, and of course checked him into the hospital and he was taken over by another doctor. And he asked about him later. And the attending physician who had done the actual heart work, and heart surgeon or whatever he was, um, said, oh, he's doing great. You know, in fact, he's probably going to go home tomorrow. And dad said, well, I was really worried about him, worried about his family. And the other doctor said, oh, look, in fact, he just gave me this. And it was like this really nice gold Rolex watch. And dad's like, are we talking about the same person? And he said the name. And he goes, oh, yeah. He said he's doing great. And, and dad's like, oh, my gosh. He said he came in in his work clothes, and I actually put a note in that we might consider him a charity case, and I know he's a miner, and the other doctor said, well, he technically is, but he owns the mine,
0: <laughs> and then so again,
1: you know, your perception based on very quick information, someone coming mm-hmm. in probably from working in the yard, uh, you know, obviously clearly mm-hmm. accustomed to manual labor, he's a miner, and what do you think, and so okay. anyway, it was, a, it was a fun experience. Uh, now, you ask, though, so what I do now, I think I am somewhere between a plotter and a pantser. Um, Since we write mysteries, uh, I do know who did it. Sometimes that changes. I know where I'm Mm -hmm. going. Um, Sometimes that changes, but I feel like I have a trajectory. And if it changes, it changes for real reasons, but I'm not just kind of writing into the void. Um, I still like to work with note cards and outlines. So I do an as kind of as written outline. So I like to start with my main points I put them on a wall or on a table, like on post-it notes or something and say, this is kind of what I know. This is where I think I'm going to start. This is where I think it's going to end up. These are some big, you might call them big scenes or big events that are going to happen and put them out. And then as I start to fill in at the beginning with ideas, some of the other things I'll be like, whoa, that has to happen much earlier or wow, that like is way down the road. And so I'll move them physically. Some of them go away. In fact, I went back and preparing for a class recently and looked at some early outlines And the early outlines, i take pictures of them. I'm like, none of that stuff happened. But isn't that one of the rules? You know, most people, until you get really where your mental process is just so acute, you're going to throw away that first 30 pages or X percent. Mm -hmm. And I had outlined it and then fortunately gotten smart enough to say, well, that doesn't even belong here. Um, So I'm a little bit of that. I've got to plot it out. But then I'm going to see where it goes. Mm -hmm. Um, I think if you... Sometimes you can work so hard on a scene or a spot, and you like it so much, it becomes much harder to edit it out. And I must say, I struggle with that with a book I'm working on right now. I kind of got the whole thing done, and um, just wasn't in the right mental place to sit back and go, this is really not the right book. And you know, what needs to stay? What needs to go? And uh, it took me a while to just even, I want to say, have the courage to go in and say, what stays what goes and you you've got to cut hard you've got to really be willing to say i love that scene and maybe it's i like the writing maybe it's just i like the you know place but it does not belong in this book
0: and thanks to computers you can save it for another book but um but that is very you know dorothy parker called it killing your darlings it's very hard Mm -hmm. to make those cuts um, so you you talked about your, you know, traveling back and forth and writing all these books and you wrote in different genres. Yeah. But you've you've been published in crime and you're working on crime novels now. I mean, is there, you know, why crime? And do, do you do you plan on maybe writing that, you know, historical romance <laughs> or something? Or are you you're happy staying in this genre? Um, I'm very happy staying in this genre, but I'm, I may also do something
1: else. And so I think the publishing, um, the entry into publishing is always a very strange thing when I hear about the many, you know, really infinite ways. There's as many ways as there are people. Um, I was writing for my own pleasure as, as I had been, as one does, and I had written a book set in Switzerland and we were going on vacation with a friend who's from the United Kingdom And she's like, oh, send me some. I should read something. Or maybe it was after we had gone on vacation. She said, well, send me whatever you're you're working on. So I emailed her this manuscript. And she said, okay, well, she's British. She goes, well, it's not the worst thing I've ever read. And, you know, very British. She goes, seriously, you have to send it (laughs) off and get it published. And she said, if you don't do it, I'm going to send it off to people here in the UK. And I thought, she will take over my life. I mean, in a good way. But I thought, you know, she will do this. And and if I want to be published, then I should... Take the responsibility. And by, um, so we were living in California. And so that happened to be the the book I was working on that I sent to her. And um, I thought, well, if I'm going to learn something about the business, like, how do I do that? I I know nothing about the business. And I, thinking back, I think if you know that you want to be published and you know you are going to try to be published and you're going to take those steps the faster you can get to know people in the community, the faster you can go to a conference or, you know, local groups like, you know, local Sisters in Crime or Mystery Writers of America or whatever group fits your genre, um, the better off you are because there's so much to learn. I Googled um, and I came up with the Algonquin Writers you know, Pitch Fest in New York and I thought, okay, that's what I should do. It's like three days, you go, you're supposed to learn how to pitch a book. And I'll do that. And that's actually where I met my agent. She was one of the instructors there. And, and so, you know, we pitched wow. to different publishers, and she said, you know, would you be willing to send me your manuscript? And, see, and, and she represented me. So it was this, just write, write, write for years and enjoy yourself. And then, bang, I went to this writer's conference. Uh, I sent it to, to Paula, and she said, I'd like to represent you. And she sent it to Minotaur, and they bought it. And suddenly I was going to be a published author. And so I didn't have really a gap. And I was still working. I was assistant vice president at a university. I was still, um, you know, there was not much of a gap. And so suddenly I was going to be published. And, you know, once you're on that kind of Ferris wheel, you know, it's coming up and down and the the clock is ticking. And there was a lot to learn. Uh, the people at Minotaur are fantastic. Um, but... There is a lot that they cannot teach you that is not their job to teach you. And I wish I'd had a little bit more time to have just kind of tooled around in the writer's world. I wish I'd been someone who said, well, hey, there's this local conference that I should just go and hang out and get some personal stories of people who say, well, do this and that or don't do this and that. Not that everyone's advice is good, but you just have a little bit more of a sense. Um, So being plunked off the deep end can be a little bit strange.
0: Well, and, and, you know, this podcast, I have a lot of conversations with folks about the difference between your writing journey and your publishing journey, which need to be, um, which are separate and different and, and need to be taken on their own. And so the publishing journey is something that, uh, is different for everyone, is hard to anticipate. There's so many options and it's overwhelming. Even if you're, you're prepared, it's overwhelming. So... That sounds like you had a pretty extraordinary sort of trajectory with this um, after, but the book that you you met and you pitched and that that got published was a, you know, how many books had you written before that were in a draw, you know, that were part of your learning process? Yeah, and
1: and you're exactly right. The writer's path and the publishing path are two totally separate things. And I, I think it's probably good to do more reminding. Along those lines, and that no matter how much someone has written, say you have you have not done the publishing part. So so you know, pay attention to that as you get involved. Um, I'm not saying people need to slow down or take their time, but just be aware there's a lot to learn. Um, and and it's in a, in a way there's not enough advice, and in a way there's just way too much advice because who knows what's appropriate. And the same thing is true with writing. You know, we always talk about what what's the best advice you've gotten, what's the worst advice you've gotten. And I think it's like a presidential election. I'm sure someone said to Barack Obama, You're just a little bit too young in your career to run for president. Why don't you know you're gonna run against in your own party, somebody who's got all the money and the recognition? Why don't you sit it out another couple of years? You're super young. Maybe that was actually excellent advice, but it's good that he didn't take it. He went on and had a successful run for president. So so was it bad advice because it turned out to be contrary to the outcome? I don't think so. Um, And then you look at the same advice. You know, you go forward a couple of election cycles. You know, Joe, I bet you're just too old. You've missed your moment. That's just, you know, sit it out. And there you're elected. So it's not bad advice. It's just that advice um, has to filter in so many factors that are unpredictable. I think it's given from the heart. It's given from the person's own experience. And you have to, to kind of refilter it and recalibrate it, not just for the current moment, but for the subtleties of the situation. Um, and, and I think that's what makes publishing a um, little bit tricky. Every, um, every author is an individual. Every book and an author's trajectory is an individual. And the time, I'm sure if you look at longstanding authors who are, who are writing in the same genre and even a series, their books are coming out at different moments in time over 5, 10, 15, 20 years. And so the, the response and everything may differ dramatically. Um, yeah, it's a it's a strange um this is
0: a strange business it's kind of an exciting one though <laughs> it is it is but it is uh, it is unpredictable and harder to understand all the time um but and you mentioned this that you wish you'd sort of understood more about the business side a little bit sooner um but what well i ha- could have
1: i could have been um you know, uh, let's say, because I, I don't want it to sound like, "Oh, I wish people had told me things, but you always want to be the best partner you can be. And so, um, the more I know, the better partner I am uh, with whomever is you know, you know with booksellers, with the publisher, with with the publicists at the publisher, you know you there you don't even know what questions to ask and yeah. and they don't know what questions you should have asked because everybody is so different. And so um, I just think the more you know, which is true in any profession, the better off you are. Um, yeah. Oh, but you asked if I might. Have, so interestingly, I, I came into mystery. I loved reading mysteries. I've always read mysteries. And I happened to write a mystery, and that's what got published. And so now I'm a mystery writer. I mean, in a way, because my friend said, I'm going to, you know, we've got to get this book published, that's what happened. And I've enjoyed it. But I have in mind that I'd like to write historical fiction also. Mm-hmm. Um, and my master's work, um, after my architectural degree, um, is actually in, uh, in history. Um, and I always call it real history just so people don't think it was architectural history because they kind of assume I went on to architectural history. <clears throat> but anyway, it's in history, it's in European history and mainly Russian history. And so, um, I I have in mind uh, a book or maybe a tour or a trilogy or something. But even though I, quote, know a lot and have a background, there's a lot of research to be done for historical fiction. And so in a perfect world, I would like to um, publish this book set in Kentucky in a distillery, which is a traditional mystery. I, I could even envision it as a series. And then also as my other project, be doing the research for the one set in Russia. Um, and and, kind of just allow myself to enjoy that
0: research and and to see what comes of it. So we'll see. you know, check back in a few years. Well, that's exciting. And there's so many historical mysteries. I mean, you can also mash things up. but um historical fiction, it, the readers really, expect it to be accurate. I mean, it's, it's, uh, the, the, the reader contract is, is so specific about, uh, you know, how the language is used and where the places are and all that stuff. So it is a ton of work to write a historical. Well, and I've already, um, you know, stayed
1: in contact with some of my professors, especially those in the Russian department. And I've already kind of met with them again and said, I'm thinking about doing this project. And, um, so they're prepared to have to read some things and, uh, but you're right. It is, it's a very, um, it is a very strong contract. And I guess the mystery community has similar strong contract, but there's a little bit more flexibility, mm-hmm. I think, um, than the historical, the details, um, Although, you know, you don't want to get that gun wrong in your
0: mystery. (laughs) You get a lot of people throwing the book across the room. Um, Absolutely true. I think it's also, you know, in these conversations, a lot of people stretch. You know, you get getting published is the first goal and then figuring it out, staying published, but also stretching is the next goal. So it sounds like there's a historical Russian novel in your future, Tracy, which is exciting. (laughs) You know, and you think about it, you were talking about, um, you know, these historical
1: books. Ken Follett, who, of course, started off writing spy thrillers and things, but his Pillars of the Earth is is still his most successful book 30 years on. And at the heart of it, it is a mystery. At the heart, like every book, there is a mystery. And I think it was probably even considered as a mystery In the book that it was written, in other words, it probably would have qualified to be submitted to the MWA for like the Edgars and to other groups, because at the heart is the mystery. So who knows?
0: Maybe I'll have at the heart a little mystery, Um, but we'll see. It's exciting. It's exciting. Um, So Sisters in Crime, you serve on the national board right now uh, as the membership liaison, which is a, a... important job and, and, you know, the members, uh, there are over 4,000 members of Sisters in Crime as we're recording this uh, podcast. Um, You know, when we're talking to our members or folks who are interested in the organization, you and I have had these conversations about the value of Sisters in Crime and the value of that community. Um, And, you know, Kate Floor was a former president who said, you write alone, but you aren't alone as long as you're with Sisters in Crime or another organization. So what role has Sisters in Crime played in your life, Uh, you know, your writing life? Well, I think um, that the quote you just read,
1: it sums it up, really, that, uh, you know, I live actually in a very small community, and so I'm not surrounded by... um, you know, a lot of things going on that are kind of literary and groups you can go. And 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 so a group like Sisters in Crime is a way to be in touch with people who are writing. And, and it's also a way to continue to be educated. Like I said, I love to tune in to the, you know, all of the classes that are offered. And they're not just offered on writing, but on publishing and, you know, every aspect of the business of craft and business. Um, and so it's a way to learn specific skills. And it's also a way to reach out to people and say, you know, I need to run this by somebody, or does anybody know someone who, and there are all sorts of little questions that I see come up, um, you know, how do you approach someone who's an expert? You can always reach out to the Sisters in Crime community and say, is it weird to, to ask someone who's a, you know, high-level professional with the FBI, and I get a lot of people saying, absolutely not, and encouraging you, and maybe giving you some tips about how to make that easier, or even saying, hey, you know, this is actually who you should call, they've been helpful for me. So I think it is about the education it's about the actual sense of community and since I'm not physically located in a strong writing community because it's very rural, um, you have kind of an online way to access people. And then at conferences, and not everyone can go to a conference and needs to go to a conference, but if you are there, there's a sense of meeting people very directly. Sisters in Crime often hosts an event. they're usually uh, definitely a presence there. These are people you can physically meet mm-hmm. And then connect with later, you know, online or on email. And, um, you know, all it takes is meeting a person in person to make it feel a little bit more comfortable when you're a novice to say, do you mind if I email you? I've got a couple of questions. Right. And and from there, you, you meet other people and other people and other people. And I think once you're part of it, you realize that a lot of your, um, you know, uh, I don't know, the, the downspots in your writing life or the questions you have, you can find a place in that community to get your little get a little pep talk or get a real answer. So for me, that's, that's been um, a very important part of it. And Sisters in Crime is about community. It's about advocating for all writers. So it's not just sisters, it's the misters. It's, you know, it's very inclusive community. Um, and I think even if you're not interested in crime writing, but you're interested in writing. This could also be a good community for you because it is advocating for the place of writers um, and also just a way to learn craft and the business of publishing. And there's obviously details with crime writing that are very specific, But people who are just looking for community of writers, I think it's a good place. And I think um, we all you know we all sit down alone. Most of us sit down alone. There are a few teams out there, but most of us sit down alone to write.
0: And so we need that sense of community to kind of help us go to the next level. Absolutely. Absolutely. And Sisters in Crime can also meet you wherever you are on your path. You know, you can be just sort of noodling with the ideas. You can be pre-published. You can be mid-career. You can be well-established. You're going to find, uh, find a group of people to talk to and some connections to be made and things to learn. Uh, being a writer is an ongoing learning experience. I think also if you're an educator. Um, and, you know, you might be a high school English teacher
1: who is never going to say, well, I'm going to sit down and write a novel. You love what you do. Or you're a librarian or you're a bookseller, and you just want to get a sense of what's going on in the head of the people doing the writing. Maybe you want to be a better partner. Maybe you're an educator, and you want to get a sense of what it takes to, to be a writer. Maybe you just love crime fiction, and you want to kind of get behind, you know, where, how the sausage is made. What are people talking about? Uh, so I think there are a lot of reasons to bring people
0: together. Absolutely. When there's a time and a place where you claim your space as a writer as well, and it sounds like your friend who was going to send out your manuscript was pushing you into that place where you're going to claim your space right now. You are a writer. Is that sound accurate? That does. And um, she probably also knew we were
1: very seriously considering uh, moving back East. You know, how, the term back East, Cracks me up because when you live on the West Coast, it is literally back east, um, and there's something very accurate about that. It's not just a phrase. And uh, for me, you know, was I going to find the kind of work here that I had before, you know, things like that? So there was a this window of maybe I will quote just right mm-hmm. and and not enter into the other part of my professional world. So it really was the right moment for me um, to do that, it was a leap off a diving board and to say, you know, is this exactly the book is that I want to write forever? Is this the type of book I want to write forever? And I don't think I have, um, 100% found who I will be in 10 years as a writer. Um, and I, like I was saying, I, you know, I'm not really a plotter. I'm not really a pantser. I think that evolves over time. The more you write, the more I think you're able to kind of mentally do some of that editing, and, you know, jump forward a little bit without even having to put it on paper. So I think writing is probably evolutionary for everyone, no matter where you are.
0: What advice would you give your younger self if you could go back and, and you know, support your, you know, what do you know now that you wish you knew then? I'll answer this question two ways. I never try to second guess
1: because, you um, maybe I would have taken a bad path. I mean, who knows? <laughs> you know, you just, you cannot, you cannot um, replay the past because if you change one thing, it changes everything. And so maybe I'm better off having had a few more life experiences um, before I really started writing. Um, you know, I, I, this sounds like advice everyone, you know, I wish I had just done better in every bit of school and sucking in knowledge and education that I could, but I, who are we kidding? Um, <laughs> You know, I didn't really need you know AP Chemistry three. I mean, I was really fine stopping at two or whatever. Um, I I just I guess I'm not a believer in correcting the past. I think it doesn't um, it doesn't work. It's not possible. Um, I I do believe, and I'm actually asked to speak sometimes. Uh, you know, my alma mater, um, Mike undergraduate degree, very strangely, I have a degree in architecture, and I have a second major in history. I was like one class short of getting a whole second degree, which is a pretty scary thought. I must have taken a lot of electives in history without noticing it. I mean, which is true. Um, And so I'm asked to come in and say, what can you do with your history degree? Because it's a little bit like, you know, getting an English degree, what are you going to do with it? And so My advice to everyone who's in a college-age situation and in a high school-age situation is um, don't be afraid to take some time off. I really think that we would benefit in the United States from a gap year Mm -hmm. where students would have a chance to hopefully do something productive, not um, do nothing for a year, but go and experience a job, maybe experience a couple of jobs as a low-paid intern or even a free intern. Um, You can waitress on the sides to make your money. Um, but, but a chance to really say, what is the life of that, of that, you know, entity, you know, whether a profession, a job, whatever it is, what does it mean to do that every day? And I think I would have, um, been more open to other possibilities. I grew up in a very small town and, uh, we had a very large medical center there, which is very unusual. So a hundred doctors in my dad's clinic, which is pretty crazy for a town of 22,000 people. And so in my mind, you could be a doctor or you could be, I don't know, I mean, you could be a doctor. Um, I mean, there were attorneys or you could be a doctor. And so, and, and, you know, I had cousins who were engineers. That was like, whoa, you know, that's pretty crazy. (laughs) And I knew, I mean, and so I think also because um, it's not like today where you're you're able just to Google anything or see people in a different way. So we may not have had as many eyes on the world. And to say, what do I really like to do? Mm -hmm. How do I want to spend my days What are the ways I can do that? And there's a gazillion things out there. So maybe I would have found writing earlier. I don't know. But that would be my advice, not for my writing self, but just for myself in general. Take a little bit more time to say, what do you want to do? I've not regretted any of the jobs I've had. Um, I don't know if I needed a straighter path or not. Probably not. Um, I will say some of the, I, I don't know that this advice has ever been literally given to me, but you hear it all the time and you hear it on online forums and I just have to bring it up. Uh, write what you know. Now, I think of people and what they write. Now, I could say I, w- I wrote in my first couple of books set in Switzerland. I'd lived in Switzerland. A lot of the things there were, were taken from the descriptions were literally homes of people. The attitudes you know were amalgamations of people. Um, so I can say in a way I knew that and I incorporated it. But I think of someone like Meg Gardner who I only know from conferences, who is a lovely person, and I do not think has been a secret serial killer in her life. (laughs) Yet she writes, you know, really these thrillers. So when someone says, write what you know, think about what they truly mean by that. Mm -hmm. I think about the book, The Martian. He did not literally have to know what it was to be alone on Mars. It's not possible. So don't take that literally. I believe that write what you know... Is, is almost what are you willing to learn? So as a writer, you know this, we write a book, we write a draft, and we say, yeah, this is kind of the scope of the book. Oh, some of this has got to go. Oh, there's going to be more of this. And then you go back and you do the next draft and maybe the third draft or whatever. And and you go from what you thought the book was going to be to what it became. And in doing that, you you learned a lot. You learned uh, probably a lot about your characters. You probably did some physical research on some details, but I think you emotionally had to connect with that book. Mm-hmm. And maybe certain characters came out because those were the ones that you suddenly felt like you understood them at an emotional level, and other characters became very minor characters because you just didn't feel it. Because in the end, what we care about are the characters. There are books that are not well written, not well plotted, but we love the characters. We cannot put them down, we have to know what happens. And so you need that emotional connection to your characters. And I think that's what we mean when we say write what you know, write what you, it's almost like what you feel. If you feel that person and their struggle or their triumph, hopefully the reader will feel that. Um, And if you don't feel it, then the reader is not going to feel it. And so for me, that's the knowing. Um, We can, you know, Diane um, Gabaldon, who I, I think is how she pronounces her name. Obviously a very successful series. And I heard her speak the other day. She said, of course, when she wrote her first book, she had never been to Scotland and it was before the internet. So she did all of her book, all of her research in the library in real books. And, um, you know, it was a very believable outlander is a huge bestseller and it still stands up as a very believable book, the descriptions. And obviously since then, she's gone to Scotland and done her research in person and really enjoyed that. And she pointed out that the sense of smell is the thing you cannot get from books, that you know everything else you can kind of look at and find video. So again, be careful when someone says, write what you know. I saw this the other day, someone was saying, I've got two ideas. One is you know historical fiction related to this, and the
0: other one is this. And they said, write what you know. And I thought, no, write what you love, write what you feel. That's great advice. Great advice, and speaks to your your Russian history <laughs> um, um, series. So you're working on your Kentucky book, which may be a series, traditional, and you're you've got um, you've got your other uh, uh, you know germs uh, starting in your brain, uh, which is exciting. And thanks for telling us about that. Um, how else are you fueling your creative self? Are you reading anything? interesting or, or, you know, you yes. said that you listened to a talk the other day, how else are you feeling your creativity these days? Well, I'm a
1: big reader as all writers are. And I, I think I'm like everybody that, um, I usually have a bunch of books going at the same time because there are books, um, that just kind of fit my mood. There are books that I can dive into very quickly, mm-hmm. books that I really have to sit into. I am reading a, a brand new book called Lady Joker, and it's by Kaoru, Kaoru Takamura, and she's incredibly famous in Japan. She has a, a, a stellar three-decade career, and Soho Press uh, just translated. Uh, they did volume one. It's going to be two volumes um, of this series, and she's never been translated out of Japanese before, so this is a huge endeavor, and I am loving this book, and um they, they had not just a translator from Japanese to English, they had a translator and they had another person who is a simultaneous translator, a different, different skill. And they worked together to bring it to the page. And I think trying to marry the kind of literal translation with how do people speak yeah. that when you're translating speech and my husband speaks several languages and I've been places where he's done simultaneous translation of a lecture. And i been there when I know both languages, and I know how he's changing it to fit—not um, the literal translation, right. but but the colloquialisms and things like that. So I'm loving Lady Joker. It's a it's a traditional mystery, uh, kind of set deeply though in the history of Japan and some of the cultural uh, problems um, that came, let's say, post um, Second World War, and then also just dealing with their own uh, cultural conflicts within their community. So it's exciting. And then there's a book called The Girl Explorers, um, which is nonfiction and focuses on the women who were the founders of a, a female exploration club. I don't remember the exact name of the club right now, but it was founded because at the turn of the last century in the early 1900s, the men wouldn't allow the women into their exploration clubs. And so a couple of women, it's kind of like Sisters in Crime getting started. A couple of women said, If the boys won't let us into their club, we're going to make our own club and we're going to, you know, be mutually supportive in getting women and connecting women who these, these were women who were climbing Everest and you know, it's kind of like, you know, dancing backward and in heels. I mean, they were climbing Everest. They were doing, some of them were in, you know, married to men who were explorers, were literally doing the same journeys, except their names were not. It's like, well, I stood right beside him on Everest. I mean, we both physically climbed it. Why am I not mentioned? Wow. Why am I not in the article? Why can I not come and do the presentation of the, oh, by the way, the photographs that I took? It you know wow. Why can women who are going solo not raise money for their expedition? So it's exactly like a Sisters in Crime start now that I think about it. And they're the individual stories of these women, each as individual as people can be, um, and then how they connect with their love of just... And for me, exploring in, in that time period, I mean, just the gear they had, you know, I'm not saying you need high-tech stuff, but, you know, they didn't have satellite radios if things went wrong, right. and, 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 of course, they were wearing, you know, wool and silk for layering, and I think, well, maybe that worked just as well, but, um, so that's been an exciting read for me right now. And
0: that's la- uh, Girl Explorer, is that the name? The Girl Explorers. Okay. All right. I'll I'll add these to the show notes so that people can. uh, I'll send you the
1: real names. Yeah, Uh, yeah, I'll send them to you. I can't, I'm squinting. I can see her last name, but it's too small.
0: Zanglin or something. It's a, it's a, but I'll send it to you. That's great. Um, That's great. Yeah. Well, those both sound really inspiring. And I, I, I think that the analogy with Sisters in Crime and the founding is a really good one. Tracy, thank you so much for being on the podcast and for the work you do with Sisters in Crime and more information about Tracy are in the show notes. Thank you, Julie. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for being with us today. Sisters in Crime is about community. We were founded to advocate for women crime writers and we continue that mission by fighting for equity in the crime writing community. Sisters in Crime is an international, inclusive organization for all who write and love crime fiction, mystery, thrillers, and suspense. Join us at sistersincrime.org and make sure you subscribe to this podcast.